Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's take our copy of God's Word now and let's go again to uh, the Romans chapter 3 section of Scripture. And uh, Lord willing, this morning we're going to conclude chapter 3, beginning in verse 27. And we've been working through a section of Scripture that honestly is, is very difficult, very challenging. But with many things that are challenging and difficult, uh, there are great rewards as we persevere. And you have persevered. I want to thank you for continuing to come week after week as we've talked about specifically the wrath of God. None of us ought to rejoice at the wrath of God poured out against any person. In fact, the scripture says God doesn't even rejoice at that. He takes no joy in the death of the wicked, he says. And yet his justice requires him to punish sin. So Paul's aim in this section is to prove that all of humanity stands guilty before a righteous judge and are deserving of God's wrath. That will surely come one day. And he's of uh, received objections, probably those he's heard in the past, those he anticipates from the folks that he's writing to now. And one by one, he puts to rest their objections about God's judgment. First, he dealt with the Gentiles, the pagan idolaters, and he said, your sin is obvious, how it has devolved worse and worse over time. And then he goes to the moral people, those who consider themselves uh, ethically good people, and he says to them that you're also without excuse and gives reasons for that. And then he comes to his fellow countrymen, the Jews, and explained to them that even though that they had the law, even though they could quote chapter and verse, even though they had the sign of circumcision, their heart had to be transformed. And, and really, he brought everyone under the same umbrella of guilt. And then, as we saw last week, he offers the solution to man's sin problem. And that is what we refer to today as the doctrine of justification by faith, which is really the answer to the question that men and women and cultures all over the world have been attempting to answer since our first parents, Adam and Eve, were evicted from the Garden of Eden. How can a man, how can a woman be made right with a holy God? And so throughout human history, we've seen failed attempts to answer that question. We see it in cultures all over the world, ancient and modern, that have practiced idolatry. Idolatry is ubiquitous. Anywhere you go in the world, you'll find man worshiping something. And in that idolatrous practice, many of them offered sacrifices. If you've traveled down to the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico, there's still the Mayan ruins there where human sacrifices were made in an attempt to answer this question, how can we made right with God? You travel to the Middle East, you travel to India, Traveled to many parts of the world, you find people practicing all sorts of incantations and whirling dervishes and taking hallucinogenic drugs in an attempt to be made right with God. And even in the not so distant past in Europe, you had people under the umbrella of Roman Catholicism practicing self-flagellation, bringing physical pain and discomfort on themselves, uh, which Martin Luther came out of that, as we'll talk about later on today. And uh, these were people who thought that they had to somehow contribute through their own suffering to their own salvation. And all of these attempts 
whether it's idolatry or sacrifices, incantations or, or asceticism, were attempts to come to God on man's terms and not God's. And all of these attempts have one thing in common. They failed. They fell short. I said last week that all religions that are not biblical Christianity are attempts by men to be made right with God through their own efforts. We call this works righteousness. All of these attempts and all of these isms have one thing in common. They don't work. So the doctrine of justification by faith is the explanation biblically of how a righteous and a merciful God can satisfy his own sense of justice and yet be true to his nature, that is to be merciful, all at the same time. And of course, he did so through the atoning work of Jesus at the cross. And Paul is declaring here in Romans 3 that God is both just, that is the righteous judge who rightly and appropriately punishes sin, and at the same time, he's the justifier the one who mercifully forgives the sinner who will repent. This, of course, is through the substitutionary atonement of Jesus. And the way that we humans appropriate and get in on that justification, that atonement, that forgiveness of sin is by simple faith. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says, and you'll be saved. Faith and nothing else, not faith plus anything. Sola fide, the reformers called it. Faith alone. What a revolutionary doctrine. What a freeing truth. And now as we come to our text today, verse 27, Paul anticipates some questions and objections around the implications of his doctrine that man can only be saved through faith alone in Christ alone. Implications and objections to justification by faith. And he answers those objections through a series of denials and affirmations. Beginning in verse 27, Romans 3. Let's read it now. Paul writes, where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since indeed God will justify the circumcised by faith, and the uncircumcised through faith is one. Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of uh, this, his word. So let's begin with Paul's denials about justification by faith. When I say a denial, certain things that he said are not true or are not implications of this doctrine. First of all, he denies that the doctrine of justification by faith leads to religious pride. Verse 27, he says, where then is boasting? It is excluded by what kind of law of works? No, but by the law of faith. So he says, boasting is excluded. It's left out. It's knocking on the door and denied entry into the picture because justification leaves no room for human pride or boasting. He says, this is a principle. He puts in juxtaposition two principles. He calls it the law of works and the law of faith, uh, meaning the means through which something is accomplished. He says, is salvation accomplished through the law of works? No. Is it accomplished through the law of faith? Yes. And sometimes that's confusing because we tend to think of law and faith as 
opposites of one another. And in some contexts, when Paul says that, it is. He's not talking about the Ten Commandments here when he talks about the law of faith. He's talking about a principle or a means through which something is accomplished. And so the principle through which salvation is accomplished is not works righteousness by keeping a set of rules. It's accomplished through faith in Christ alone. And so he is denying that justification by faith would leave anyone any room for boasting. Look what I did. No, everyone has to come to the Lord the same way, as we say, empty hands. The foot of the cross is absolutely level, and so no one can boast. The second denial that he has is that justification by faith is just another work. Works righteousness is denied. Look at verse 28. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith, what? Apart from works of the law. There's a clear division between belief in Christ and the works of the law. There are some people that say, well, if you say I've got to believe, that's something I've got to do. Well, no. Ephesians 2.8 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it is the gift of God. We, we tend to think that he's talking about salvation is not of works. And of course that's true. But in this case, in Ephesians 2.8, he says you've been saved through faith, and that, that is the faith is not of yourself. It is also a gift from the Lord. It's not something that we work up from within. This was the mistake of some of the revivalists of the centuries past. They, they've thought and taught that there's some semblance of goodness left within every human, and if we can just strike the right chord, we can sort of draw out that goodness, and then that person will be saved. No, Paul denies that. He says, even the faith to believe is a gift from the Lord. And then a third denial, he says that the doctrine of justification by faith does not put limits on God's sovereignty. That's what men and women have been trying to do since the Garden of Eden, put limits upon God's sovereignty. Look at verse 29. He says, or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Let's hold your place there in Romans 3. Turn back a few pages to Acts chapter 17. Of course, the book of Acts primarily is the story, the history of the first century church, of which Paul plays a major role of his missionary journeys. And on one of those missionary journeys, he arrived at, I guess, the cultural and educational, academic, philosophical epicenter of the world at that time, the city of Athens, Greece. And he goes to a public place there, the Areopagus, and uh, this is what we find Paul saying in Acts chapter 17, verse 22. He rises to speak. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus, verse 22, and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For I, while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. So Paul is walking through the streets of Athens, and there's idols on every corner. Many of them have inscriptions. And Paul ran into this idol that had an inscription that said, to an unknown God. That is, that they worshiped all manner of gods. And in case they happened to miss one, this was sort of a, a catch-up. And so Paul seized upon that and said, the God, verse 24, who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, 
since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far away from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, and even some of your own prophets, poets rather, have said, for we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, the image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So here's the Apostle Paul who grew up steeped in Judaism, which is a monotheistic religion. One God. And can you imagine how it grieved him to walk through the streets of Athens to see all these pagan idols? Paul addresses this, of course, in Romans chapter 1, where he describes the declension of humankind that started out worshiping God face to face in the garden. And then he began to worship statues that looked like himself, and it has devolved all the way down to man is worshiping creepy, crawly things. It must have broken his heart, gave him righteous anger and indignation. But what Paul is pointing out here to these idolatrous Athenians who thought of themselves as academically and intellectually elite, that the essence of idolatry is believing things about God that are not worthy or true of him. This is what all idolatry attempts to do, is to close the gap between holy God and sinful man. That is, they try to bring God down more like us and try to raise man up closer to God and, and therefore close that spiritual gap. In other words, man tries to put limitations on God's sovereignty by imagining a God that's less than sovereign. And we see this throughout world civilizations. For example, the Phoenicians, who were seafaring people, they thought of their gods as gods of the coastlands and gods of the sea, and that's how they worshiped them. They thought of um, the God of Israel as the God of the hills and the mountains. So they put geographical limitations on God's sovereignty. The Egyptians did the same thing. They worshiped the sun and the moon gods, when all the time Paul declares here that God was the creator of the sun and the moon. Well, at least uh, the Jews understood that God is one. In fact, one of the most important sections of Scripture to every Jewish person was Deuteronomy chapter 6, which we call the great Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Now, that has great theological implications. If there is one God over all humanity, one creator, it means that the one God and one creator over all humanity including Gentiles. And if Paul, remember here, he's addressing primarily his Jewish friends. He's addressing that elephant in the room that they have to come to deal with as it relates to the doctrine of justification by faith. Because he points out in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that this is the stumbling block to many Jews, is that justification by faith is the means that anyone, including the Gentiles, can be made right with God. Paul says justification by faith doesn't put limitations on God's sovereignty as all idolatry does. In fact, it opens up the truth that God is God of the Gentiles as well. He says it in 
those words in verse 29. Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, Paul says, of Gentiles also. And leaving no doubt in verse 30, he says, since indeed God will justify the circumcised. Who are the circumcised? Those are the Jews. By faith and the uncircumcised through faith, the Gentiles is one. There's one more denial that Paul makes in verse 31. He denies that the doctrine of justification by faith nullifies the Old Testament law. Look at it, verse 31. He says, do we then, that is through the doctrine of justification by faith, nullify the law through faith? May it never be. There's that strongest Greek phrase again, thousand times no. On the contrary, we establish the law. So Paul is addressing that oft-repeated charge against him by the Jews of antinomianism. They said, Paul, if you teach that a man can be made right with God by simple belief, that he, that he doesn't have to do works, you're telling us that this law we've been trying to practice all of our lives was meaningless. Paul says, absolutely not. He says, in fact, the doctrine that I'm teaching shows you how important the law actually is is it establishes the law in our hearts and our minds and indeed over all creation. Remember we saw last week, Paul doesn't deny that the law is important. He says the law has its purpose. And what is the purpose of the law? We said two things, to close our mouth and to hold us accountable for God and it worked. But rather than nullifying, which means to render useless and unimportant and trivial, the doctrine of justification makes firm the law. It shows us exactly how important God's holiness is. And in fact, Jesus, when he came on the scene and established the new covenant, said that he came not to nullify the law, but to what? To fulfill it. He did that in a couple of ways. One, through his perfect sinless life. He is the only human, because remember, he's all God and all man who ever perfectly kept the law. But he also, I believe, established the law through his death taking on the punishment that that law called for. How so? Well, follow my logic here. How do we know the seriousness of any law our legislature passes? How do we know they really mean it? If they're willing to enforce it, right? A law that is not enforced really has no teeth. It's never been established in the culture. So what shows the importance of the law. I, I read with interest this week, uh, back in my home state, I, I try to read the online newspaper there almost every day, and uh, they're getting ready to put to death um, a convict there, a prisoner in Parchment Penitentiary. It's the first time in four years they, they've done that. And that's never something we ought to celebrate, but, but yet, reading his case, it seems to be an appropriate punishment. How will we know that the government is serious about murder by the execution of punishment on those who are rightly found guilty. And for many years when I was growing up, the method of execution was the electric chair. And kids talked with fear on the playground about the electric chair. And sometimes I see folks, and I've done it myself, wear a cross around our neck as a piece of jewelry or hang crosses upon our walls as decoration in our homes. But the cross was an executioner's device. Can you imagine walking around with a tiny electric chair around your necklace? Or pictures of the electric chair on, on your wall? How macabre we would think that would be. But when a person, though 
very rarely is put to death for their crimes here on earth. It establishes the law in our mind. It doesn't make it weaker to know that the government is willing to take this punishment to its natural conclusion. The cross does that. So the law is not nullified through the cross. It is established in our hearts and minds that God is indeed holy and he's just. The law is established through Christ's sacrifice and it's drawing us to him and also by giving us for the first time the ability to obey it. See, what do we always say? That we sin because we're sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. But when we're born again, the scripture says, all things have become new. We receive the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit and now we have the ability, the capacity for the first time in our lives to keep the law. And in these ways, the doctrine of justification does not nullify the law. Far from it, just the opposite. It establishes the law. Now, the fear that many of Paul's Jewish opponents had about the doctrine of justification by faith and the basis of their charges against him of antinomianism is that they believe that the doctrine of justification by faith would lead to licentiousness. That people would just sin wantonly and the culture would devolve into chaos. And Paul says the opposite of that is true. And you know this to be true if you're truly born again. The doctrine of justification by faith for the person who's truly born again does not lead to licentiousness. It leads to holy living. Because the first time in your life you can be what God has called you to be. You can bear fruit and much fruit, holy fruit for the glory of God. So that, that's the negative way, denials, the negative way of looking at the doctrine of justification by faith. Let's turn it around and look at the same set of verses from the opposite perspective through affirmations. What is Paul affirming? What is he saying is true about the doctrine of justification by faith? Well, he says it leads to humility, which is a good thing. Jesus said of himself, described himself as being humble. When Paul says that the doctrine of justification by faith excludes boasting, he has a true understanding of it, doesn't he? Our own Baptist faith and message, which is our doctrinal statement, says this. The doctrine of election, when rightly understood, leads to humility, not pride. And so people can't go around and go and say, well, God elected me. He chose me because he couldn't do without me. That I was so good or I was so lovable that, that he embraced me. You know, Paul says he chose you if you've been chosen despite who you are, not because of who you are. How do I know that? Well, turn back one book to your right, and you'll come to 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 31, Paul is talking about this doctrine of justification by faith. He's also talking about the doctrine of election, how God chooses some for salvation. And he's talking to the church, and he's not giving them a compliment. Here's what he says. 1 Corinthians 1.26, for consider your calling. I take that to be your effectual calling, your salvation, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many not noble, not many mighty, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Here's what Paul's doing. Picture him reading this or the pastor reading this letter to a room full of people like this who are Christians. And he's saying, look around you. Literally, look around you. 
Look at the people to your right and your left. He says, not many wise here. <laughs> not many noble. Not many intellectually elite. But God has chosen what the world would say is a foolish person. Why? To confound the wise. That is to make sure that he gets the glory. God has chosen the weak, verse 27, things of the world to shame the things that are strong and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are. Paul says it doesn't nullify the law to believe in justification by faith. What it nullifies is a cause for pride. Why? Verse 29, so that no man may boast before God, but by his doing you are in Christ Jesus. His doing, not yours, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. If you want to do some boasting about your salvation, brag on Jesus. He did it. He did everything that was necessary. He kept the law perfectly. He went to the cross courageously. He died literally, and he was resurrected forever. And we didn't have one thing to do with that. And at just the right time, he found us, Paul says, dead in our trespasses and sins. He brought to us through the means of another saved person the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he breathed spiritual life into us through the effectual calling, and he raised the spiritual dead to God be the glory, not to us. Paul is affirming that a right understanding of the doctrine of justification by faith leads to humility. He's also affirming from our perspective, 500 years removed, what we know today as the doctrine of sola fide, Told you we'd come back to this. Next Sunday morning, October 31st, will be the 504th anniversary of the Reformation, which began historically when Martin Luther nailed his 95 Thesis or arguments against the Roman Catholic Church on the church door of Wittenberg. Heard a wonderful testimony a couple weeks ago of a person who came to faith in Christ by reading Martin Luther's biography and reading the doctrine that he believed in and came to faith. And of course, we describe what Luther and the other reformers believe in terms of solas, which is a Latin word for alone. And he believed in something called sola fide, which means faith alone, which is what Paul is describing in Romans chapter three, that we are saved through belief and faith in Christ and nothing else. Not any works that we can add to it, and we teach and believe that to this day. How freeing. Those of you who grew up in a faith tradition that said, yes, faith in Christ is fine, but to that, we've got to add the sacraments. To that, we've got to add our best efforts of works, righteousness. To that, even if we die, we can't go directly to heaven. We've still got to go to purgatory and suffer a little bit. And Paul says, no, Christ has done it all. He's not left anything undone, and all that remains is for you to join yourself to Christ through simple, childlike faith. How powerful. It led to a great revival, this truth, called the Great Reformation, the greatest revival I believe the world's ever seen. And we're praying, aren't we here, that God would do it again. And why would we believe that God would do it through a means other than he's always done it, 
which is the clear teaching of the gospel in full dosage that man is guilty and stands under the judgment of God. And if he will not repent, he's on a highway to hell. But if he will believe, put his faith in Christ alone, he'll be forgiven and be glorious saved. And in his eternal address will be transferred from hell to heaven. There's one more universal affirmation here, and that is um, Paul's affirmation of God's sovereignty over all of his creatures. Paul says, God is the God of all men, Gentiles and Jew alike. Friends, this has incredible implications for missions and evangelism, doesn't it, Brother Lawrence? That we can go to anywhere on planet Earth and preach this same message. We can go to Africa, we can go to Indonesia, we can go to the Middle East, we can go to South America, and we can go to the South Lake Town Center and tell people if they will repent of sins, if they will bow their knee to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, they will be saved. Not just for Americans, not just for Baptists. It's for all who will believe. What an incredible truth. That's why we can get on a jet at Dallas-Fort Worth Airport and go to places like Kenya and announce this and people hear it and some will believe. And we get on a boat and go to India like our Baptist forefathers did. And they can preach this truth. Some will be saved as some were. That's why we can have an 84-year-old lady who grew up in Colombia baptized in this church as we did last week. And how in the next service we'll have a young person who's a first-year immigrant from China saved at one of our universities and will be baptized in this room at 11 o'clock. Aren't you glad that the gospel is for all people? There's not a gospel for Jews and a gospel for Gentiles. There's not a gospel for the Western world, a gospel for the third world. No. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. And then there's the affirmation of the establishment of the law. Its purpose has been established and made clear through the perfect sinless life of Christ, through the substitutionary atonement of Christ upon the cross, and is being announced and testified through the transformed life of believers. I had the privilege of uh, teaching our online Sunday school class this week. And as I was doing my research on that, I was uh, moved by the historical evidence of how many in the Roman world who were pagans and idolaters came to faith in Christ by observing the way in which Christians were persecuted and even killed for the sake of the gospel, but how they did that with grace and dignity and, hear this, peace. Those people who were being mauled by lions died with more peace than the wealthiest Roman pagan. Why? Because they were anchored to Christ. They were in Christ. That's the most important thing you can ever know, friends. The most important truth that can ever be said of you is that you are in Christ. Why? Because Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. If you are connected to Christ through faith in 
him and what he's done. And you're not depending on anything else. Paul points it out in Romans chapter 8. What can separate us from the love of Christ? And he began to list all these possibilities. Nakedness, peril, war, famine. What's the thing people fear most of all? Death. Not even death can separate us from the love of Christ when we are in Christ Jesus. What about you? Are you in Christ? Are you just around Christ and his people? Maybe you like to come and sit and listen to beautiful music. Maybe you like to drink coffee and have donuts in a Sunday school class. That does make you a believer. Has there come a place in your life where you recognize the incredible, clear truth that if you died, you'd spend eternity in hell? Because you've never come to him on his terms. You've always wanted to come on your terms. When I feel like it. When I'm older. When my business is straightened out. When my marriage is running more smoothly. Then I'll come to you, Lord. No. Today is the day of salvation. Give up on anything else you're depending on. Any work that you think is going to have any merit. Come to him on his terms. Lord, have mercy upon me, the sinner. He hears that prayer. He rejoices in answering that prayer, the prayer of humble faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for Romans chapter 3. And as we've come to its conclusion today, there are incredible implications here, Lord. Everyone's guilty. No one has an excuse. No one can stand before you on the day of judgment when the books are open and say, what about? Our mouth will be stopped. We'll all be held into account before you as guilty. Father, the only hope we have then is to run to Jesus and to attach ourselves to him through simple childlike faith. There's no other way. No other name given above men by which we must be saved than the Lord Jesus. Father, I thank you for that simple message that can go anywhere in the world that even a small child can comprehend. Father, I thank you that you're still saving some today. And Lord, we would pray that you'd save many others. Lord, we pray for revival. We pray for awakening. You've sent it before through the Reformation. You've sent it through the Great Awakening here in North America. And in both of those cases, it came when God's people preached the full counsel of God, including your justice, including your wrath. Lord, I pray there be awakening in the pulpits of the evangelical church. Father, where we would repent of telling people what they want to hear. Coddling them, Father, into false assurances all the time they're on the road to perdition. Forgive us, Lord for our desire to be popular. Forgive us, Lord, where we want to be known as one who grew a, a large church if it's not through your way. And Father, I pray, Lord, you'd be pleased to save many souls, not so we can boast. As Paul said today, boasting is excluded when we understand the gospel. Salvation is by grace through faith not of works, lest anyone should boast. Lord, you will not share your glory with any person or any church. You alone are worthy. 
So Lord, I pray in the quietness of the moment your spirit would move. If there's even one here today who knows you're not in the free pardon of sin, who's been clinging to some perceived asset that they have that they can bring to you on the day of judgment, Lord, show that that's worthless. Bring him to the point where the Apostle Paul was, Lord, where he saw all of his resume, all his credentials, all of his works righteousness as meaningless and worthless. And then that's when you intervene and you saved him, Lord. Do that again today, multiplied times over for your sake, your honor, and your glory. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.